So as Rick said, we are wrapping up our summer sermon series called Masterpiece. And throughout the summer, we have returned over and over again to advice given by the Apostle Paul about living the Christian life. And we find that here. He says, for we are God's handiwork. That is, we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's masterpiece. We are his very own created work of art, perfectly crafted, perfectly enabled to live and work in this world. Our series thesis has been this. We are good works of art created to do the art of good works. And throughout the summer, we've looked at specific ways that God creates this masterpiece in our lives Uh, We looked at specific good works that that God would have us use in our lives. And in fact, a a few pages later, we have a list of of what some of these look like. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We are his masterpiece. And these are the paint-by-number ways that he's going to create this artwork in us. So we have looked at the art of humility, the art of gentleness, the art of patience, the art of love. Last week, the art of unity. And finally, we're settling on the art of peace. And I think we start today with a, a little bit of a tension that I think all of us feel. Our desire For peace is a universal desire, and yet we live every day with some amount of conflict. We long to experience peace, but our experience is often discontent. Wars between nations, cultural clashes, racial divisions, us against them, conflicts in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches. Peace is such a peculiar idea, isn't it? How can something that everybody desires so much be so elusive? And to truly understand what we mean by the art of peace, we will turn to God's word because God is the master artist who's going to paint this picture of peace for us. And I think we will discover together that this painting that he paints is is maybe a little unfamiliar. And I think we'll discover that our, our definition of peace is a little inadequate. And to really get at this, uh, we need to first discover together what is at the root of our discontent. How is it and and why is it that we find ourselves living lives that are marked by a lack of peace? And that discontent comes at us in three ways. Lack of peace within us. So personal conflict with family, friends, and and co-workers. War between nations. The, The evidence of the absence of peace is evident in our relationships. And finally, we look at, or next we look at um, the, the lack of peace between us and others. And so these are the things like personal conflict with friends and family. And finally, we look at the lack of peace between us and nature. And we see a conflict with diseases and natural disasters and accidents, much of it completely out of our control. And so we have conflict within and, and conflict with others and conflict with nature. And we feel it, don't we? Everything feels so, well, so terribly broken. Will it ever go away? Well, where did all this conflict come from? So I say pick your discontentment. And choose your injustice. So the epidemic of drug addiction, ethnic or racial hostility, declining health, political corruption, 
financial disaster, failed relationships. Ask yourself, what is at the root of these very real personal and, and cultural anxieties? What is at the root of our discontent? And if you're a note taker, write this down. The heart of all conflict is a heart in conflict with God. In the very first book of the Bible, in, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the, the very origin of our discontent. This conflict with God that has stolen our peace. Step by step by step, we will discover how, how we created the conflict, how we started the ball of discontent rolling. How is it that we, well, we traded away our peace? So in American history, the name Benedict Arnold is synonymous with, with treason and betrayal. No other person and, and no other action better sums up what it's like to turn your back on your country. Benedict Arnold was a successful general in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, but at some point in his career, he grew dissatisfied with the lack of recognition he got. So he switched sides from colonial American to England. And his most notable betrayal was his offer to surrender West Point for the equivalent to $4 million. Well, the deal was discovered, and he was forever labeled a traitor. But here's the deal. Benedict Arnold's treason, well, it, it pales in comparison to the cosmic treason of Adam and Eve. And it's our treason as well. We betrayed God. We walked away. We took a bite of the apple. We stepped into shame and we hid from God. And we alone are responsible for the separation and the loss of peace. And so in the very first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve traded complete peace with God in the world for conflict with God in the world. They traded complete satisfaction in God for their own wisdom and, and getting their own way. And it destroyed everything. But the very first thing it destroyed was peace. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, and we will watch together as that perfect peace that we possessed in the very presence of God in that perfect garden fell like dominoes. Peace within us fell. Peace between us and others fell. And finally, peace between us and nature fell. And so let's read together as we witness peace within us being replaced with turmoil and conflict. You see, Adam and Eve have taken a, a fatal step away from God and absolutely everything changes. The first domino falls. And this is what we read. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the land and said, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? A feeble attempt to cover up their shame. Conflict to man and woman happened in a blink of the eye. Peace between us and others was fatally damaged. God has asked a question. 
And, of course, he knows the answer before it even comes out of Adam's mouth. God asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam's answer in verse 12, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me and and I ate it. Conflict, discontentment, man turned on woman, families turn on families, nations turn on nations, races turn on races, all because of conflict with God. And finally, peace between us and and nature the final domino. So starting in verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you've listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, do not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until the day you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so everything is in conflict. Conflict inside of us, conflict between us, and conflict in nature. All because of conflict with God. When Adam and Eve lost their peace with God, they betrayed his goodness and they rejected his rule. It was indeed the ultimate treason. They chose conflict and separation, and they passed on that conflict and separation to all of us. And just in case you're you're saying, well, that was then and this is now, and why should I pay for something that happened so very long ago? Well, the Apostle Paul makes it clear to us. He puts the blame squarely on our shoulders when he says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So who's at fault here? We share the blame. It's our inheritance. So what is our pathway to peace? What is the cure for conflict? It has to start with a right relationship with God. The relationship with God must be reconciled in order for all other relationships to be reconciled. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden is a loss that we inherit, and it must be mended. It must be restored. Warren Wiersbe was a pastor and a prolific Bible commentator, and he puts it this way. In the world, peace is something you hope for or work for. But to the Christian, peace is God's wonderful gift, received by faith. Unsaved people enjoy peace when there is an absence of trouble. Christians enjoy peace in spite of trials because of the presence of the power, the Holy Spirit. Now, many of you have already placed your allegiance in Jesus Christ, and for others, you you may not be quite sure what to do with Jesus Well, can I invite all of us to to lean into the truth as it reveals a way to lasting peace with God. The follower of Jesus named Paul through the power of the Spirit reveals this truth. He says, for 
If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies, he's pointing out that this is the starting point for all of us, enemies of God. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled. We were made right with God in one way and in only one way. And that's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In another letter written by Paul, we see this spelled out with complete clarity and truth. This is what he says. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Remember, the heart of all conflict is a heart in conflict with God. Here comes the good news. But now he has reconciled you. That's peace. God has moved on our behalf. God has removed the obstacle that we created by our rebellion. This is the only true source of peace. There can be no lasting real peace until we have peace with God. Peace that you and I yearn for begins at the cross of Christ. This kind of peace has nothing at all to do with our own efforts to rid our lives of problems. Nothing at all to do with our own efforts to, to change our circumstances. Here's a question. Will you follow the truth wherever it leads you? You see, there was hundreds of eyewitnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are countless numbers of people down through the ages, including people sitting here today, who can testify to the power of the resurrection in their life. Who can testify to the power of the peace that passes all understanding in their lives. If you're on the fence with this today, can I encourage you to listen now to the words of Jesus, what he has to say about this. So I'd ask you to grab your Bibles in the seat back in front of you or turn to your phones and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. So this is in the second half of our Bible called the New Testament. It starts with Matthew, then Mark, and Luke, and then finally our book, John, chapter 14, verse 27. Before we read this passage together, I want to I give some context in which it was written. Because in studying the Bible, context is everything. You see, these, these things we're going to talk about, well, they happened at a very real point in history. They happened at a very specific place and a, and a time. Because they're very real historical events, this is the color that, that Jesus used to paint the picture for us. And so in this biography, John weaves an account of the life of Jesus. And this account spans all of eternity. So at the beginning of his book, this is what he says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
You see, John is keen to anchor his story of the life of Jesus by assuring us that Jesus existed with the Trinity before history even began. And then for 13 chapters, he gives an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus. The miracles, the, the parables, the teaching, the, the equipping. He talks about what the kingdom of God is going to look like here and now and what the, the kingdom of God will look like when he comes again. And when we finally arrive at, at chapter 14, the cross is in sight. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own. He'll be arrested and he'll endure a sham trial at the hands of the religious and the civic leaders. He will be ridiculed. He'll be beaten. He'll be spit upon. And finally, he'll die a horrible death on the cross. Before any of that happens, Jesus does something amazing. Jesus does something that's profoundly beautiful he takes time in the midst of all of that he takes time to bring comfort and encouragement to his friends and his followers and so in John chapter 14 verse 27 we read these words from Jesus himself peace I leave with you my peace I give you I don't give to you as the world gives do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. In the face of his own suffering, Jesus turns his face to his disciples. He turns his face to us to give us words of encouragement for what lies ahead. And Jesus knew the, the struggles that his followers would face. Over the next hours, they would scatter away from him in fear. Betrayal would happen. His closest friends would crumble under the pressure. One of his closest friends, Peter, would deny that he even knew him. And Jesus would face his accusers all alone. In the face of his own death, Jesus, he wants to leave him with peace. It's an amazing thing. When they should have been comforting him, he comforts them. And what would we do in his shoes? I think we might be occupied with denial and fear. I think our, our focus would likely be on ourselves. Unlikely, I think that we would turn our attention to our friends and our family to give them comfort. Peace. That was his heart for his followers the night before his suffering. This is what Jesus was aiming at on the night of his death on the cross. He wants them to experience peace. And not peace like the world has, but a kind of peace that only he can give. And for all of us listening today, this is, this is Jesus' aim for us as well. If you'll let him, Jesus will transform your life into a masterpiece that allows you to live a life marked by peace. In those final hours of his life, Jesus was focused on a very practical kind of peace. And we know this when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Our hearts. He was responding to the fear and the anxiety that was written on the faces of his followers. He's concerned about the heart. He wants his disciples and he, he wants us to, to live a life free from anxiety. 
And Jesus stresses that this is a, a peace that is distinct. It's different than the peace that the, the world has to offer. He says, I, I don't give to you as the world gives. You see, the, the world does have its own form of peace, doesn't it? Now, I'll call that the, the peace of a well-ordered life. The world and popular culture has convinced us that if we live a well-ordered life, we can have peace. The world and culture has convinced us that if we, if we just land a good enough job, then we'll have peace. The world tries to convince us that if we spend borrowed money on vacations and toys, that we'll have peace. The world does its best to convince us that if we raise our kids with, with an impossible mix of intelligence and success and athletic prowess and perfect behavior, well, then we'll have peace. A life free from health and relationship problems, we'll have peace. The underlying idea of this version of peace is that, that our circumstances dictate the outcome. But this is false. It's a false understanding. It gives power to our circumstances to grant us peace or to rob us of peace. But Jesus is clear here. He says, I, I don't give to you as the world gives to you which means his peace is unconnected to good circumstances, unconnected to a well-ordered life. Instead, his, his peace is a reality in spite of bad circumstances. And when you experience or, or you even witness that kind of peace, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Earlier this year, we had the privilege of, of spending time with a, a lifelong friend as she lost her battle with cancer. In the weeks after, leading up to her death, we had, we had a chance to visit with her and, and read scripture with her and, and pray with her. And, and to be clear, to the very end, her prayers were pointed. She so much wanted to live and to pour love and life into her friends and family. But there was a peace that was beyond understanding when at the end of those prayers, she would say something like, well, God has a plan and I just want what he wants. At her funeral, I summed up her last days as a beautiful sadness. A sadness for all kinds of loss. But beauty as we, as we witness what it looks like to have complete peace that is unconnected to your circumstances. And for Jesus, the peace that he has to offer his followers has, has nothing to do with circumstances. In fact, it's just the opposite. And he spells it all for them just a, a few pages later. He's even closer to the cross at this point, even closer to his, his followers scattering and, and fear. And, and Jesus wants to share some additional truth around this. So he tells him this, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered. Each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone for my father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. A time of trouble is coming. A time when you'll all scatter, a time when I'll be left alone. But I'm never alone because the Father's with me. And then Jesus shares this universal truth. In this world, you will have trouble. No question about it. Just in this 
past month and the month to come, I have abundant examples of trouble in my circle of friends. A friend who's at the end of his rope because of rebellious children. A friend that I, just last night I learned he's, he's facing a difficult diagnosis. A friend who's facing the end of their marriage. Another friend who may be losing her job. In this world, there will be trouble. And in all my own family, I, I have abundant examples. Our son Matthew, for a second time, going back for major surgery in a little over a week. Our other son, Chris, seven months still in the hospital, struggling to recover. In this world, you will have trouble. And if all of us, if all of us took time to write down what it is that we're facing right now, we could fill a book. In this world, you will have trouble. And the peace of Jesus is, is not an escape from life's troubles, but it is a partnership where we give up our attempts to make it through our days on our own unreliable strength and instead we join with Jesus who never fails, never leaves us. The Greek word for trouble is the word terasso. And it means to agitate or, or to stir up or, or to cause inward commotion, to take away calmness of mind. And Jesus assures us that we will experience that. And I'm comforted to see that, that Jesus himself experienced that. Jesus was troubled. Again, he had the cross in mind when he said this, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And then he was with his disciples in the upper room, celebrating that last supper together. And after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Then he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. As the troubles come, and anxiety can come with them. And even though we are powerless to stop troubles from coming, we are not powerless to stop anxiety from overwhelming us and paralyzing us. If our working definition of, of peace is the absence of, of conflict, then we're missing the point entirely. In this world you will have trouble is a foundational truth that Jesus started with. On the other hand, if we grasp the peace that Jesus offers and apply it to our lives, then this peace will lead us, it will comfort us, it will hold us through all kinds of conflict and stress and anxiety. Some of you may be at a point in your lives where you've, where you've experienced this kind of peace. But for others, it seems like a, a distant just a totally unrealistic promise at best. I want to give all of us a roadmap to experiencing this peace. And we find that roadmap in Paul's letter to the Philippians when he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything. Easy, right? We just need to muster up enough strength. 
but we know better, don't we? This is not mind over matter. This isn't pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. This isn't buck up buttercup. God's roadmap when we lose our peace, it's not a strength move at all. It's a surrender move. Paul said, don't be anxious about anything, but present your requests to God. Something causing you to worry, present your request to God. Surrender it. In the middle of a conflict, surrender it. Up against something completely out of your control, surrender it. And if we follow God's roadmap to peace, this is his promise to us. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. There's our word again. And Paul makes it clear that this is not your garden variety peace. It's a peace that transcends all understanding, which means you can't measure it with a ruler. You can't weigh it on a laboratory scale. You can't Google it on your phone, and you certainly can't understand it by getting a theology degree. It's a peace passes all understanding. But it can be recognized. It can be experienced. And the more we experience, the more readily we are to recognize it. And so Peggy and I have taken groups to the Holy Land ten different times over the years. The very first time she went, she left me home. She went with her brother. Uh, When she got back, she couldn't stop talking about her experience, all the things she saw, all the things she did. She went on and on about it. She showed me all the pictures. And if I were to be honest, I was a little underwhelmed. I might have been a little bored even. But a couple of years later, we went back together to the Holy Land together. And suddenly what was blasé was now beautiful beyond words. It was amazing, profoundly meaningful. And I think that's the way it is with God's peace. There's no way that I can adequately describe what it is that I've experienced. You have to experience it for yourself. But just because we can't adequately describe it doesn't mean that it's some sort of spiritual mumbo-jumbo. This peace which transcends all understanding has some very practical and and very obvious effects as it works itself out in our lives of believers who accept and apply God's gift of peace. Paul tells us that God's peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we need to take a moment to see how that word guard would have been understood by the first century audience that heard it. The Greek word translated guard means to guard and protect by military presence to prevent hostile invasion. Have you experienced hostile invasion in your life? So this is a military term. It would would have us picturing soldiers standing guard on the walls of a city preventing attacks. And Paul is using this specific attack to show us that that when attacks do come, God's peace will stand guard and protect us. And attacks do come our way. Attacks out of nowhere and, well, sometimes attacks that we invite. 
Well, I've experienced these attacks, and I know you have too. This past year has been difficult for our family as our, our two sons face significant health challenges. And I can all too easily fall prey to the hostile attacks. Attacks like fear and depression, anxiety, when faced with huge unknowns. But we are learning to allow God's peace to stand guard on our hearts. We're learning to allow God's peace to to fight our battles. Because when we drop the guard of God's peace, we fall easily into the what-ifs. And what-ifs can quickly spiral into very, very dark places. Now when we recognize the signs of God's peace leaking out of our circumstances, it's a prompt for us to go to God in prayer. Paul says this, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Prayer. God, I'm afraid today for my kids. Father, restore your peace in my heart. Guard my heart and my mind. I trust you wherever this takes us. So when we recognize the signs of God's peace leaking out of our circumstances, it's also a prompt for us to go to his word, read it, and remind ourselves of his great love. Read it and remind ourselves that he is always faithful. He always provides. Not always in ways we understand, but he will guard our hearts and our minds. And how about you? Where do you go when life is falling apart around you? What do you do when, when fear and sadness, when anxiety just overwhelms you? I know some of you are here today and you're in the middle of that storm right now. Some of you are truly suffering. You're not experiencing peace. And while I wouldn't presume to assign any meaning to your suffering, I can tell you that God's will in the middle of your suffering is to invite you into his arms. God wants you to trust in his grace and his mercy in the middle of the mess so you can rest in the peace that only he offers. If you're here today and you're still putting the pieces together, if you're still trying to decide whether to give your allegiance to Jesus Christ, remember this. The heart of all conflict is a heart in conflict with God. If that's you, please understand that, that real peace, authentic peace, lasting peace can only happen on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen. You don't need to be stronger. You need to raise the white flag of surrender. Today, right here and right now, you can confess your need for him. Your need for forgiveness. Your need for a peace that only he can give you. Only his saving grace can fix the conflict. I can think of no better way than bringing us to a conclusion today than to, to pray for that peace that passes all understanding. If today is the day where you are ready for that peace, 
that only Jesus can give you, I invite you to pray with me. Father, we are beyond grateful for the peace that comes to us through your son, Jesus. Father, for those who are here today and and yearn to know your peace that's beyond understanding, we confess and understand that we are separated from you by sin. And we are truly sorry. Father, forgive us. Restore us to you. We desire to place our allegiance in your son, Jesus, and allow him to rule in our lives. Amen.